Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Good morning to our online community. I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, lately, with my daughters, we've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia together. And if you know that series at all, I mean, we're almost done. We've got a few chapters left in the last battle. So we've been at it for a little while, and we're getting close. You may know that the third book in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That's the exact edition that I have. I've had that since I was a, since I was a kid. Love these books. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's the story of King Caspian of Narnia going out to find the seven missing lords of Narnia. So he sets sail, goes on a voyage. He has Edmund and Lucy with him and Eustace and Reepicheep, the mouse and the rest of his crew. And they're on this long voyage to look for these seven missing lords of Narnia. And eventually they get to the Lone Islands. Now the Lone Islands were a territory of Narnia, but they hadn't had any contact with anyone from Narnia for a long time. And when they got onto shore and started to investigate what was happening, they started to realize pretty quickly that things on the Lone Islands weren't what they were supposed to be. I mean, first of all, they were captured by slave traders, which slavery was completely for forbidden in Narnia. And then they get sold to this mysterious man. This mysterious man ends up being Lord Byrne who is one of the missing lords of Narnia. And he's kind of filling King Caspian in on what's happening and how Governor Gumpus, the, the, the person who's in charge of the Lone Islands, uh, what he's doing. And so Caspian, he asks, and what is this governor, this Gumpus, like? Does he still acknowledge the king of Narnia for his lord? Lord Byrne responds, in words, yes, all is done in the king's name, but he would not be best pleased to find a real live king of Narnia coming in upon him. In the absence of contact with the king of Narnia, the king's representative at the islands had made their own kingdom and had ignored anything to do with Narnia. And the thought of a true king coming in was going to be met with resistance. And as a reader, you're like, no, that's not the way that this is supposed to be. I mean, come on, Narnia is a good kingdom. They're the good guys. These people are, they're off doing their own thing. How could they abandon a good king and a good kingdom? Lewis, who is just such a masterful writer, captures so much of what we're actually going to see in our parable today from the Gospel of Luke. In our parable, there is a king and a kingdom with an unfaithful servant and some subjects who will even reject the king altogether. But it's not just in the parable, right? It's so often in our own hearts as well. We've been in this series in the Gospel of Luke called The Great Reversal. And there is so much in the Gospel of Luke that we have not been able to cover. We're almost done with the series as we approach Easter here in a couple of weeks. 
But hopefully, throughout this series, if you've been listening in, you've been able to see that this portrait of Jesus' kingdom that Luke is painting is one where the kingdom of God is often counter or different than our own world and our own kingdoms and our own authorities. And when we're faced with a choice between the kingdom of Jesus and our own kingdoms within our world, Luke will consistently point us toward the kingdom of God, toward the kingdom of Jesus. So we're going to have our public reading of scripture now. Gary is going to come up. He's going to be reading from Luke chapter 19. If you have a device or if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to be able to follow along throughout this time. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they had gained from it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has gained 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, he said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of the Lord. How did you feel about saying thanks be to God after the last line in that parable? <laughs> uh, I was just telling a friend this week that there is hardly a passage in the Gospel of Luke that doesn't have some very challenging or sometimes even inflammatory statement like that in, the, in there. There are a lot of challenging statements in Luke. We're going to address that final statement eventually 
um, in a bit. But first, let's kind of just get a sense of what we're looking at here overall for the parable. It's important for us to get our bearings of where Jesus is at. In verse 11, they says that they are almost to Jerusalem. Jesus had been making his way to Jerusalem since chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, where it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So for 10 chapters in the story now, for almost half of the whole gospel, he's been traveling to Jerusalem, healing people along the way, facing opposition from people, teaching people in parables. And now with this current parable, it says that he's almost there. He's almost to the end part there. This whole time he's been on that journey to Jerusalem. In fact, the next passage in Luke's gospel is where he is entering into Jerusalem. Now, there are two plots that are happening in this parable. There are the servants who are given the minas. Each one is given one mina, which is money. It's a fairly substantial amount of money. And they're given a task with their mina to put it to work until the nobleman returns. Now, some of them do pretty well with this, and one of them doesn't do very well with this. He does poorly because he doesn't do anything with it at all. Then the second plot is that there are the subjects, or literally the citizens of the land, who don't want the noblemen to become king. So they try to stop that from happening unsuccessfully. Probably not a wise idea. Now, these two plots are happening at the same time in the parable. And in the midst of those two plots and those two sets of characters, the subjects and the servants, there's the king, or we have the nobleman who is going to become king. And he seems to be described in some pretty hard terms, right? Some pretty strong terms. He's a hard man. He was someone to be afraid of. It says that he puts in where he, or he takes out where he does not put in and he reaps where he does not sow. And it also, uh, at the end of the parable, he takes away the one mina from the third servant and gives it to somebody else. And then those citizens who had rejected him, he has them executed. That's pretty strong language. Now, at this point, it might be good for us to talk a little bit about how to interpret a parable. There's a whole lot that could be said about that because parables are used in a variety of ways and there are a variety of types of parables. If you wanted to do some in-depth study yourself, the best book that I know on the subject is called Stories with Intent by Klein, Klein Snodgrass. Highly recommend it, tons of information in there. But for us today here, let me just mention a few things about interpreting parables. One, understand the parable in context. What's happening around it in the story of the gospel or in Jesus' teaching? For example, Jesus is talking about someone becoming king and being rejected as a king as he is about to enter Jerusalem. Second, parables are usually not one-for-one analogies. Now, they are analogies of something in reality But rarely does every aspect of that analogy work out to real-life things. So, for example, in this parable, there is a connection between the king in the parable and Jesus. 
But that doesn't mean that Jesus is like the king in all ways, reaping where he did not sow and having his enemies killed. Third, the most important bits are usually at the end of the parable. The shocking statements at the end of the parables are usually the most important ones for trying to understand what it is that Jesus is communicating. For example, the focus in this parable isn't so much on the rewards that the first two servants receive, but it's on the consequences on the third servant and then on the subjects at the end. Fourth, parables are intended to make us think and question and respond. They aren't usually trying to teach us strict theology. They're they're trying to get a point across. Jesus uses them for a specific thing, and he often does so in a shocking way. The parables are meant to raise questions in our minds and for that to sit with us for a little while until it elicits a response from us. In this case, we're supposed to be thinking about the warning at the end of the parable. If you're not considering things like this when you come to this parable or or most parables, really, then you might be coming away with a skewed perspective, a distorted perspective of what God is like. But Jesus isn't trying to give you a description of God in this parable. He's using a parable with a specific intent that should cause us to think and question and respond. So what do we have to think about with these two plots that are present in the parable? Let's start off with the king. Like I said, Jesus is telling this story at a key point in verse 11. He's about to go into Jerusalem, but also in verse 11 it says, the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The kingdom of God is what prompted this parable from Jesus. The people knew that Jesus was, that his destination was Jerusalem. He had resolutely set out for it. Anticipation was brewing as he was arriving there. They had been following him for days, maybe months, maybe some of them for a few years, and now he's arriving in Jerusalem to claim his kingdom. By the way, this actually fits in pretty well with where we're at in the church calendar right now because next Sunday is Palm Sunday, which is where we remember and celebrate Jesus entering into Jerusalem at that time. So Jesus' parable is about a, uh, about a king is connected to his own kingship. And a pretty significant clue to this is that after this point, Jesus is is called a king five times in the Gospel of Luke, and he's never called a king before that in in the Gospel of Luke. So one of the crowds shouts out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Another crowd shouts out, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? The Roman soldiers mocked him, saying, 
if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And a sign was attached to the cross that he died on that said, this is the king of the Jews. So the parable sets up the fact that Jesus is about to become king. The whole gospel has been building to this, that Jesus is king. There you go. You're shocked by that, aren't you? Main point, right? I'll give you a little while so you can write it down. It's going to take you a little bit to copy it. It's a big main point. Jesus is king. Now, it may not be surprising to hear that, but is it challenging for us sometimes? The question for you and I is, do we want Jesus to be king? This is one of the questions that the parable's really getting at. The subjects in the parable, they didn't want the king to become king. In the parable it says, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Jesus was rejected as king as well. He wasn't just rejected in Jerusalem either. And in fact, this wasn't even the first time that God was rejected as king. The Israelites went to Samuel, the prophet, and said, give us a king like the other nations. And God said to Samuel, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. The problem goes back even further than that. All the way back to the beginning of the story in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. God being God wasn't enough for them. They wanted to be gods as well. And the problem persists today. We want to be God often. We want to be kings and queens. We like to build our own kingdoms where we have control and where our desires are met, where our wills are done. There's comfort and security in our own kingdoms. Now, sometimes that comfort and security, it's because of planning. Like, we can make our own plans so we can anticipate what's going to happen. Sometimes it comes about from our wealth and our resources. We have the things that we want. Sometimes it comes from ego. We want the attention on ourselves within our own kingdom. Or sometimes it just comes from being easy. We don't like to be challenged in our kingdom, right? Sometimes it comes about from something as simple as just control and autonomy. I want to be able to make the own, my own decisions for my life. We be, build kingdoms from politics and ideologies which often do not line up with the kingdom of God. We build kingdoms out of trying to form all of our own identity ourselves rather than knowing our identity as a child of God. Sometimes we even just build kingdoms out of the, the protection and the accomplishment of our own families. Ultimately, it comes down to my will versus Jesus' will. 
Do we want Jesus to be king? Eugene Peterson said it like this, God is a rival, not an ally in the God business. He's competition for our rule and our reign, which we daily have to contend with. At least I know I do. Anybody with me on that one? Maybe? Okay. He shows up on our lone islands where we often acknowledge him as king in word only. Let me ask you a question. It's the first of three questions that I'm going to ask you, and they require some thought, but I am looking for responses. What does it look like for Jesus to be king in your life? What does it look like for Jesus to be king in your life? Hmm? He's the boss. Yeah, so he gets to call the shots then, right? The boss gets to call the shots. Okay, good. Obedience. Yeah, if the king wants something, then we uh, are to obey that, right? We're to do that thing. Yeah, good. Surrender, I heard, and leader, I heard. Yeah, absolutely, the king is the leader. He's the one we follow, the head of the church. And in order for that to happen, we have to surrender. We have to surrender our own control, our own wills at times. And we have to say, God, we trust you, Jesus. We trust you with our lives. One more over here. Forgiving. Yeah. What does it look like for Jesus to be king in your life? Thank you. It looks like being forgiven. It looks like being set free, in fact. It's a good thing to have him as our king. Absolutely. And a friend, too, as well. He's a king, he's a brother, and he's a friend also. Yeah, these are all great answers. When I think about Jesus as king in my life, I think about me faithfully living out his kingdom values and letting who he is form who I am. But I have to admit that sometimes I just like to sit on the throne. It kind of sounded awkward, actually, when I just said that. It's not how I I meant that. Sometimes I ignore what is best for the kingdom of God and instead gratify my own kingdom. And sometimes that doesn't even always look like bad things. Like, for me, sometimes, that looks like a lot of work here in my job. I work at a church. (laughs) And yet, even here, I get so wrapped up in all of the busyness of everything. Am I actually letting Jesus be king in the things that I do? The idea of being faithful to kingdom values is very connected to the second plot line that we have here in our parable. So let's take a look at the servants. They're given money, but aren't told specifically what to do with it other than to put it to work, which means to do some business with it, buy and sell and trade. Basically, do the things, the, the, the servant should be doing the things that the king would be doing with his own money if he were there, if he wasn't away. It's like, here, take care of my affairs while I'm gone. 
Now, we don't get to hear about all 10 servants. We only hear about three of them, but they're kind of the examples for us. And the first one turns his one mina, his one unit of money, into 10 units of money. So, of course, the king says, well done, my good servant. Now, the second one, he does something similar, but the third one, man, he kind of takes a different approach by basically not doing anything. He buries the king's money, he wraps it up, and he returns it, not having put it to work, not having done the things that the king asked him to do. The king takes his mina away and gives it to the one who has 10. And he says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This is not the only time that Jesus has said these exact words. He said them in Luke chapter 8 as well. So you know they're important. He's basically saying, if you can't be trusted with something, I'm going to take it away from you. It's kind of like when I let my son push his little brother in his little push car when we're going for a walk, and right away he starts like veering all over the place and running into people and doing wheelies and things like that. Like, uh, son, I'll take that. I'll go ahead and push that for you. The king goes away in the parable And the tension in the story is what happens while the king is away. We don't actually see what happens. We only see the result of it. But the tension of it exists in what the the servants are doing while the king is away. The king needed people to represent him well in his business while he was gone. He needed people who were going to be faithful. And that's exactly what he says about the first Servant. In the translation we read, it said that he was trustworthy, which is a good word for it. That word, though, pistos, is usually translated faithful more than anything else. And it's often used to describe Jesus himself. He is faithful. But it's also something that we as followers of Jesus are called to many times in Scripture, to be faithful. Like the king in the parable, Jesus goes away. He goes into Jerusalem after this, Palm Sunday. He's crucified, Good Friday. He's raised from the dead, Easter Sunday, and then he goes away. He ascends into heaven, which we'll talk about the Sunday after Easter. What are we going to do while the king is away? This aspect of the parable teaches us that Jesus needs faithful representatives while he is away. This is another idea that we can connect all the way back to the beginning of the story in Jesus or in Genesis. When God created humankind in Genesis 1, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. Being made in the image of God is fundamentally about representing God's rule and his reign 
to the rest of creation. Humankind is meant to rule in God's place when he's not there. Well, that didn't work out too well. So then God chose Israel to represent him. He said to the Israelites, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. You will represent me to the people and a holy nation. Well, that didn't go well either. In fact, this parable that Jesus is saying, he's probably directing that a bit to the Jewish leaders who have rejected him as king, and even to all of Israel who hasn't faithfully been that kingdom of priests. God has always been looking for humankind to represent who he is to the rest of the creation, to the rest of the world. And Jesus is looking for that from his followers now as well. Will we be faithful with what has been entrusted to us? Let me ask you what I think is an important question. What is it that we need to be faithful with while Jesus is away? What is it that he's entrusted to us? Hmm? Share the word. Share the message of the good news of the kingdom. When he sent the disciples out at first, he said, go into all the villages and preach that the kingdom of God is near. Absolutely. Good. What else? I heard love. Is that right? His love. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. We have been entrusted with his love and we get to share that with other people. It reminds me of Jesus in John 17. He's praying, in the, uh, he's praying to the Father. And he says, um, he says, I have made your name known and will make it known. So that the love with which you loved me will be in them and I in them. Absolutely. Love. Good. What was that? Time. Ooh, that's an interesting one. We've been entrusted with time. We've been given the resource of time, right? We can't really increase it or anything. It's, it's just there. And we get to do whatever we can with the time that we have. That's a good one. I'll get one more. Forgiveness. Yeah. We've been entrusted with forgiveness, right? How do we model that then to other people? And how do we let other people know about the forgiveness that there is in Jesus I love these responses. I'm sure you got a ton more, but I'm going to cut you off right there. Some of the challenge with this parable is that Jesus uses the analogy of money. And so there are like whole theologies that are built upon this parable where we're instructed to go make as much money as we can for the kingdom of God or be willing to take risks for the kingdom of God. But the money in the parable is just an analogy for something that's greater. It's, it's an analogy for something else. The king in the parable is an earthly king. So he's dealing with earthly things like money. But Jesus, he's got all the authority in heaven and earth. He said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. What he has entrusted to us is far more valuable than money. 
What he has entrusted to us is the kingdom itself. A little bit later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will say to his disciples, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me. Jesus was made king through his death and resurrection and ascension, but his kingdom hasn't been fully enacted. There's a common phrase that we use to kind of describe that, that his kingdom is now, but not yet. It's here, we're a part of his kingdom, but it hasn't been fully realized, not until he comes back. We're in the in-between time where we need to be faithful with the kingdom until the king returns, because it is the kingdom that has been entrusted to us. We're in charge of the Lone Islands right now. Lord, help us to not be like Governor Gumpus. Let me ask you one more question. What does the kingdom of God look like? Peaceful. I mean, the king is peaceful, right? He's the prince of peace, so his kingdom is peaceful. Good. Love. Again, we see that theme of love as well. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you to love one another. So those in the kingdom absolutely better be loving one another. Yeah. Faithful. Yeah, there's faithfulness in this kingdom. And actually, a word that kind of could be associated with king and connect that idea of faithfulness is allegiance, which so much captures that aspect of pistis, that word that, it, that means faithful. It's allegiance to Jesus. Good. I don't know if I'm actually looking at the right person. I'm making eye contact with somebody. I don't know if that's the person who said it, but one more. Hard work. Oh, look at that. There's been, is that DJ back there? Hey, way to go, DJ. Um, Hard work. Yeah, there can be work involved with the kingdom, right? Just like the king in the parable, he, he says, put my money to work. So also, when we've been entrusted with the kingdom, There are things to do with that, and we need to be faithful with that work. That's great. I think I'm going to, again, you guys have wonderful responses. I'm going to cut you off right there. I think there's a lot that can be said about the kingdom, because basically, in order to understand what the kingdom of God is like, you just really got to read all of Scripture, because that's the description of it. You consume it, and it becomes a part of you. You meditate on it, and it forms the way that you think and the way that you act. The kingdom of God isn't about specific to-dos. It's about embodying the life of Jesus and representing that to other people in the world. And that's a nuanced thing. Here are just a few thoughts on the kingdom, though. Kingdom of God, it is very Jesus-focused In the kingdom of God, everybody's attention is on Jesus. Are we pointing people's attention toward Jesus in the kingdom of God? Two, it looks like human flourishing. The things that we do in the kingdom make us and others live out their full image of God selves. It's gracious and forgiving. 
It makes a way for restoration and for relationships. For it's sacrificial. It, in, it, in, it includes giving of oneself to other, following the example that Jesus gave us. And last, the, it's the place of trust and not fear. We know that our king is good, that he loves us, and that he'll take care of us. We don't have to wrap up our treasure and hide it away. We can put it to work. So in this parable, what did the servant, the third servant, not do? He didn't participate in the kingdom of God. The kingdom was entrusted to him, and he didn't participate in it. He was a servant by name, but he didn't participate. He wrapped it up and stowed it away. He was called a servant of the king, but he didn't actually serve him. And that participation is so necessary for who we are and in the kingdom. You ever, like, you ever try to pick up a child and they do sack of potatoes or limp noodle? Like, kid, please participate in this effort of me lifting you up because it will make everything so much better. In the kingdom of God, everyone has to participate. There may be varying degrees of participation. The first and the second servant, they didn't seem to do the same thing, but they're both commended. They were both actively engaged in the kingdom. Eugene Peterson, one more quote for him, he puts it this way. He, Jesus, intends to get us involved, our feet in the mud and our hands in the bread dough, with a living God who is at work in this world. This is why Jesus tells stories, not to inform or explain or define, but to get us actively in on the ways and will of God in the homes and neighborhoods and workplaces where we spend our time. How can we bring the kingdom of God into those areas in our lives. You've been entrusted with the kingdom. And based on all of your circumstances and all of your resources, how do you put it to work what has been entrusted to you? Faithfully representing Jesus. Okay, we're coming to the end here. Now, overall, the message of this parable is that we should faithfully do the work of the king until he returns. That's the message to you and me. And there's no mistaking that this message is a warning. In fact, it's a pretty strong warning, in particular for that third servant and for the subjects who rejected the king, who didn't acknowledge him as king. I don't think we like warnings very much. I know I don't like warnings. There's a part of me that cringes when I read this a bit, just like there is so much in the Gospel of Luke with all of those hard sayings that are in there. He does not pull any punches. But there's actually some irony in this last warning that comes through or to the subjects who reject the king. The king in the parable says, 
But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. They rejected the king, and so he had them killed. They paid the price for their actions. But Jesus, the true king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, he's about to enter into Jerusalem where he is going to be rejected by his subjects, by his citizens. But it'll be the king himself who dies. Jesus will pay the price for being rejected rather than demanding the punishment from everyone else. The king would rather lay down his life than dole out the consequences for everybody else's decision. Why? Just look to Hannah's sermon from last week. God pursues us and God rejoices over us. God wants you. God desires to be near you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He's deeply committed to you. So often, we reject him, or I reject him. So often, or so often we accept him, but are too busy building our own kingdoms to be faithful with what he wants. But he accepts us, and he's faithful to us. The king who had all authority in heaven and on earth laid down his life for his subjects and his servants, for you and for me. Paul wrote to Timothy in a, in a passage where he's encouraging Timothy to faithfully do the kingdom work that he has been called to do and to pass on the teachings of Jesus. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. There's no getting around the fact that today's parable is a strong warning to not reject Jesus as king and to faithfully do the kingdom work that's been entrusted to us while he's away. And there's no getting around the fact that Jesus gave his life out of love for all of humanity so that you and I could be accepted. Those two things exist simultaneously. That you're accepted in Jesus, that you're sought after by Jesus, that Jesus rejoices over you, and that he holds us accountable for how we live our lives and what we do with what is entrusted to us. All within the context of his sacrifice, 
and the grace and the love that he has for us. He's faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to him. But the life that is truly life, the flourishing kingdom life, is a life that is faithful to King Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, you are a good king, full of grace and mercy, love and truth. We can trust you. We can trust our whole lives to you. We can trust our little kingdoms to you as well, which you offer is so much bigger, so much greater, so much more wonderful. I pray, God, through your spirit here, that you would just help turn our attention more and more to you, Jesus, in our lives daily. Help us to see with who we are, each one individually, the circumstances that you've placed us in, the resources that you've given us. Help us each to see how on each day we can faithfully be your servants with what's been entrusted to us. I just thank you, God, that That is all within the context of your love and grace. We love you. Amen.